Hi, I'm Meredith Roden, and I'm the host of the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. So this week on Getting to the Bottom of It, we're talking about really what a crazy week we've had. It's been a week full of unrest from students, leading up to the Board of Trustees this week announced that it would be creating a task force for the university to look at its investments in fossil fuels. Shannon, how did we get here? So members of Sunrise GW, they penned a letter uh, towards the end of December calling on university officials to divest its holdings in the fossil fuel industry, as well as close or cut ties with the Regulatory Study Center, which is a research hub on campus that accepts donations from corporations like ExxonMobil and also fossil fuel stakeholders like the Charles Koch Foundation. Earlier this week, members of the group stage a protest at the Regulatory Studies Center 10-year anniversary celebration. On Wednesday, they officially presented the letter they had written um, to LeBlanc. They um, staged a march to his home on F Street. Um, and at the protest, there were, I think there were about 70 students there, including one student who was allegedly pushed down the stairs by a member of the GWPD. So there's been a lot of tensions on campus regarding this issue, not just in the past couple of months, but also um, when the organization was still Fossil Free GW, um, they've been staging a lot of protests about this over the past um, couple of years. So it's definitely been an issue that's kind of been percolating. Well, what I really like about your story this week is you're not just looking at the tensions on campus, but you're taking a step back and speaking with experts on you know what it's like to actually divest from fossil fuels When you actually talk to experts, what were some of the technicalities that they said GW could run into? Um, One expert in particular said that um, divesting completely from funds connected to the industry could be difficult depending on if the university holds its investments through index funds, which are portfolios of stocks and bonds that are representative of the larger financial market. Um, And he said that um, this particular expert I spoke with said that instead of holding index funds, often, which include fossil fuel stocks, um, the university can invest the endowment in stocks, all of the stocks that would be listed in an index fund, just excluding those on the index fund sub-portfolio that are related to energy sector stocks, uh, which would include fossil fuels. So there are some challenges to actually accomplishing divestment, but what is the university facing if they can't get that done? Um, Yeah, a few experts I spoke with uh, discussed the negative social and reputational consequences for a university um, that chooses not to divest its fossil fuels, um, sorry, divest its holdings in fossil fuels. Um, Yeah, they said um, that universities can face pushback from alumni and students who are concerned about the effects of their university's impact on the environment in terms of their investment in certain companies. However, some experts said that even though divestment can send a strong political message, um, especially regarding environmental activism, that in and of itself divestment from fossil fuel companies doesn't have a major impact on the prices of those stocks and just those companies in general. So some experts said that selling fossil fuel investments likely wouldn't dramatically change the price of the um, funds. So the biggest effect of divesting would be to create a political statement regarding the issue. Do we know what the next steps are or when we can expect another update on this? Um, So in the video that surfaced of um, President LeBlanc last week when he revealed the amount that the university invests in fossil fuels, which is approximately $53 million, 
Um, LeBlanc said that officials are working on divesting that number as well, but at the meeting on Friday, he walked his comments back a little bit on declining to say whether or not he supports complete and total divestment from the industry. Um, he did say, however, he supports a board chair Grace Spates announcement to create a task force examining the board of trustees' environmental and social impacts. Thanks, Shannon, for walking us through this week. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Meredith. This week, I'm here with academics editor Jared Gans to give us an update on the administration's main goals. Remind us again what the strategic initiatives of the university are. So President LeBlanc um, introduced uh, the strategic planning process back in September and said this was going to be a year-long process as we work to a five-year strategic plan that's going to have four pillars. Um, the first is to focus on attracting world-class faculty to the university, the second on high-quality undergraduate education, the third on distinguished and distinctive graduate education, and the fourth on producing high-impact research across the board at different levels of the university. And so this is something that the president has been pushing since they were announced in the fall, but this is the first time that you're going to bring us, or this is the first time that there is an update on the progress of these initiatives. Right, so four committees were developed to work on each of the pillars of the plan, and the committees late last month released interim reports midway through the academic year to go over their recommendations and the feedback that they've received from listening sessions they had earlier about what to do about each of these pillars. So what are the main takeaways from the reports? For the world-class faculty report, the main goal was to find a way to attract more faculty who are high performing from other universities as well as improve the faculty that we already have. The report mentions creating a mentoring system to have senior faculty serve almost as mentors for junior faculty to show them the ropes to give them techniques about teaching, about conducting research, and really get them adjusted to the culture of GW. The, for the undergraduate education report, um, President LeBlanc um, has made the increase in STEM to 30%, um, a major part of the strategic plan. So the committee recommended tying GW's STEM programs to its traditional areas of strength in politics, in public policy. So encouraging more interdisciplinary courses and work to bring together STEM and non-STEM so that GW can achieve a strength in both areas. For graduate education report, um, the report recommends, in general, giving more attention to graduate students. It recommends creating a new position of vice provost for graduate programming to have someone who is fully dedicated to the needs that graduate students need and often feel that they are ignored at the university. For high-impact research, similar to some of the other pillars, um, inter interdisciplinary work is a big focus of bringing together STEM and non-STEM to one combined effort. So the plan recommends creating a research academy to try to stimulate interdisciplinary research from people of different departments to create a sort of think tank on the campus. So your beat is academic, so you've been talking to faculty members about their thoughts on the reports. As a whole, faculty said that they support, at least theoretically, the goals and recommendations outlined in the reports, but they have some concerns about lack of specifics in the reports as to exactly how all these things are going to happen. Murli Gupta, who is a member of the Faculty Senate and a professor of mathematics, said he was really interested in the faculty committee report 
about promoting diversity, but he was concerned that the report did not mention a specific definition of diversity and what means by that and what is going to be strived for in achieving greater diversity. Well, can I ask, this isn't a new concern, (laughs) right, from faculty about being left in the dark. Faculty have raised concerns throughout this planning process that they have not been given enough involvement in the strategic planning process. A number of faculty leaders have said that merely notifying them about what's going on in this university does not constitute shared governance, which is the principle of administrators and faculty having a role in the decision-making at GW. And the Faculty Senate even considered and debated and will potentially pass a resolution at the next meeting that said the planning process of the strategic plan violated the principle of shared governance by not letting them in enough. Were there any other more specific definitions that faculty wanted uh, when you talked to them? Other faculty did not focus as much on the definition of what was being accomplished, but did express concerns about a lack of supporting data and evidence as to how some of these um, initiatives are going to be accomplished. Gaston de los Reyes, who is an assistant professor of strategic management and public policy, said he's skeptical that the university will be able to achieve greater interdisciplinary research because there is a lack of incentive on the part of individual researchers to accomplish that. Researchers are always doing their own research, but there isn't per se from an individual researcher's perspective an advantage of doing interdisciplinary research if they're very focused on their own niche topic. So he said, in spite of the proposal of the research academy, the university will need to find a way to incentivize researchers to participate in that interdisciplinary research if they actually want to accomplish that. Well, thanks, Jared, for the update. Thanks for having me. So it's February, the season of love, and I'm here with our culture editor, Sydney Lee, to talk about some ways that you can spend your special day, or not so special day if you're single, so sorry. Um, Sydney, what are your suggestions? Yeah, so we really wanted to find some cool events that are happening that you don't necessarily have to go with your partner, you know, they're not necessarily romantic, they're just fun things to do that are still Valentine's themed. So one of them that I would recommend to check out is called Woo at the Zoo. It's happening at the National Zoo. And you basically can just sign up for some cocktails and then also learn about different, like, mating activities of animals at the zoo. So you can do this with a partner, but you can also do it solo. Definitely. Um, What about if we wanted to do something that's more, like, just for solo people? I would say a great one is to just hang out with some cats. So Crumbs and Whiskers is having a Valentine's Day event at their cat cafe in Georgetown. And that you definitely don't need a date because you'll be focusing on all the kittens and the cute things around you. What is something that's more for couples? Yeah, so the District Running Collective is having something called Boxing with Bay. So you and your partner can sign up for a 60-minute class to learn the basics of boxing and mitt work together. Do you have to have done boxing before? No, this can be an any-level class. Okay, well, another part of Valentine's Day is obviously the presents. You and your reporters talk to a local GW business about different kinds of gifts that you can get for their, your significant other or, you know, even just friends if you're doing like a Galentine's Day. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that product? Yeah, so the company is called Dulciology and a grad student and her sister created it a few years ago and they actually won the new venture competition last year for their company. 
Um, and they specialize in alfajores, which are a Latin American style cookie, kind of resembling a macaroon or something. So what do they taste like? So a lot of them have a dulce de leche filling topped with coconut shavings and covered in milk chocolate, but there's obviously very many varieties of them. Do they sell, how many varieties do they sell at this business? So while there's not very many varieties in the flavoring, they change it up every season for the holidays. So for Valentine's Day, they'll do heart-shaped ones in pink and red colors, and they also come in gluten-free. Oh, cool. Is this kind of a splurge for Valentine's Day, or are these on the more reasonably priced end? It can really vary. You can get different gift boxes from Buciology, so they have smaller ones that are definitely super affordable for students, and then they have bigger boxes if you really want to splurge. When your team talked to the two girls, where did they get this idea? Well, they moved to the U.S. in 2001 from El Salvador, and their grandma had this great alfajore recipe, and they couldn't find anything like it here in the U.S., so they decided to take their grandma's recipe, tweak it a little bit, and then use that to start their business and make their own. So they come from kind of a food cooking background. Yeah, definitely. Their mom is a pastry chef, and their dad manufactured restaurant equipment in El Salvador, so they grew up around kitchens and just baking in general. And are they trying to grow their business outside of GW? Yeah, they actually used some of the money that they won from the new venture competition to open up their first storefront in Federal Hill, Baltimore. And so they also sell it online, but this is their first physical space. Well, happy Valentine's Day, Sydney, and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Happy Valentine's, everyone. That's all for this week. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Meredith Roten and features culture editor Sydney Lee. This podcast is produced by podcast host Meredith Roten. Music is produced by Oak Studio. And a special thanks to Jared Gans and Shannon Millard for joining us.